0: we're going to be in mark again tonight which should come as no surprise to most of you i will be in mark chapter 3 verses 20 through 35 if you need a bible um, there are some on the stand to my left and your rights you're welcome to help yourself to one of those for tonight and if you need one uh, to take with you by all means take one of those as a gift from us to you. We've been in Mark now for, I think this is week six or eight, somewhere in there, and we've still got a long way to go, but I hope you've been encouraged uh, in what we've covered so far. Um, And when we talked way back at the beginning of this thing, at the beginning of May, we said that kind of the banner theme that hung over Mark's gospel was the theme of discipleship. And so tonight, Mark, as he relates this story of Jesus in a home and confronting the Pharisees and Jesus' family coming for him, uh, he's going to further clarify the lines of what discipleship is, of what a true disciple is versus a false disciple. And so hope tonight will be encouraging, but also hope that if need be, it will be uh, convicting and draw you closer to Christ, uh, make you more dependent on his spirit in you and the power of his word in your life. We are in the summer months. And if there's one thing I love in the summer, it's to eat a really good sandwich. Who's with me on that? Like, it's too hot for anything else, and I'm not healthy enough to eat a salad when I should. And it's like the next best substitute for a bowl of cereal is a really good sandwich. Like, that's just the life I live. If you ever want to wonder how a man can survive on what I usually eat for my diet, just come spend a week with me. It usually involves a lot of Oreos, Starburst jelly beans, and cereal. But I do love a good sandwich, and there are two sandwiches that sit at the top of my list as the best sandwiches going. They're both particularly summer sandwiches. The first is a tomato sandwich. So you need a Better Boy or a Beef Eater tomato, preferably. Those are the two best sandwich slicing varieties. And you need that thing off, fresh off the vine, just washed. You slice that thing up. You put it on sunbeam white bread, Yes, yeah, stick with me. Sunbeam white bread, Duke's mayonnaise, then you put your tomatoes on there, and then you need McCormick black pepper, not this fancy grind-your-own pepper, no. You need McCormick black pepper that has on one side where you can scoop it out or pour it out, on the other side where you can just kind of sprinkle it out, and you need to sprinkle McCormick on there until maybe your tomato disappears. That's the first one. Second one, you just take the tomato out, Maybe you prefer to sub peanut butter for mayo, but it's a banana sandwich. White bread, mayo, or peanut butter. I've actually recently become a convert to mayo with peanut butter. And so you do one piece of bread with mayo, one piece with peanut butter, Mm -hmm. slice that banana up, put a little McCormick black pepper on there. Uh, Both of those, regardless of where you fall on your love for or hatred of the sandwiches I've just described, (laughs) what you need to pair with them Our regular Lay's potato chips. Don't get fancy. Sour cream and onion is for barbecue. Is for having hamburgers and hot dogs. You need just plain Lay's potato chips, and you need an ice cold kind of burns the back of your throat Sundrop. Like that is, that is summer persona. Like that is summer on a plate right there. Like that. Man, they're, they're so good, and if you like either of those, maybe your mouth's watering just a little bit right now, maybe you just like sundrop. maybe you think I'm crazy and you think both those sandwiches sound disgusting, you would be wrong, but you can think that. But man, there are two of my favorite sandwiches. And I bring up sandwiches because tonight we're going to look at the first of what are six sandwiches in the Mark of Gospel, in, in the Mark of Gospel, the Gospel of Mark. And so what Mark does, not only in the story we're going to look at tonight, but in five other instances that we know of for certain, is Mark takes one continuous story and he breaks it up. And so he'll have an opening part of the story, and then he'll seemingly redirect our focus or move us off of what he starts to tell, tell something else that's happening within the same timeline and in the same story, and he'll tell another one and wrap that story up and finish it, and then he'll come back at the end, kind of like the bottom piece of bread, and he'll retell or finish the story that he started. And just like a good sandwich, if you just got two pieces of bread with nothing, you just got bread. Like you don't, it's what's in the middle that determines the sandwich. And so it is that Mark will start telling a story. He'll give you seemingly like a, why is Mark telling us all this in the middle? And then he'll go back and tell the rest of the story he started with. It's that middle section, what would be the filling in your sandwich, that we use to interpret the outside meaning. Just like your bread is interpreted by what you put between it, you understand your sandwich not by the two pieces of bread that hold it together, but by what you put between it. So you understand these marking sandwiches, not by looking at the outside story that frames everything, but you understand what marks after in the outside story by what he tells in the middle. Everybody confused? Good. This will all make sense as we unpack it. Let me read Mark three twenty through 35, and pray for us, and then we'll get right into it. Starting in verse 20 of chapter 3, Mark writes, Then he, meaning Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the fact that we don't have to try to make up what following you looks like. You've given us your word, not only to fully give us your character as best we are able to understand it in finite human sinful bodies, but you've also given us your word so that we would know once we've been welcomed into your family what it looks like to be a true follower of Jesus. And so tonight we pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment. We pray that you would bring conviction, that you would give us courage and discernment and wisdom and understanding and what it looks like to go out and live as your disciple in our life and in the world in which you've placed us. We do all this for the glory of the name of Jesus and for our good. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. The first part of the sandwich, the outer piece of bread, the top piece of bread is 320 through 21. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying... He is out of his mind. And so Jesus, if you were following along, or maybe you were with us last week, or you aware of how Mark falls out, has just come off the mountain after calling the disciples to himself and commissioning them in the life of a disciple. And he immediately heads back to Peter's house in Capernaum. And once Jesus and the disciples arrive, the crowd begins to form. It's similar to if you've seen the old footage of when the Beatles would land in different cities across the U.S. We'd be told, man, the Beatles are coming. And when they would get out to the airport, there would just be droves of people that would make it hard for these five lads from Liverpool to get to their car, to go to their hotel or wherever they were headed next. In much the same way, thousands of years before, when Jesus and the disciples rolled into a town or went back to Peter's home, It didn't take long for everyone to know, okay, he's back, let's go. And so immediately what starts out as Jesus and his disciples and a few others who were following him at that point eventually begins to swell and grow to the point that there is so much humanity crammed into Peter's house that Jesus and his disciples are unable to eat. How many of you love being in large crowds where you can't really move? Anybody just, you're like, man, that's the one thing I love more than, now try to put yourself in this situation. You're hungry. There's no AC in these homes. You just want to sit down and have a normal meal. If you're the 12 disciples, your world has just been turned upside down because Jesus has called you to himself and told you what life as a disciple is going to look like. You would imagine there are a lot of questions they want to ask. Before they can even feed themselves, there are so many people crammed in there. The picture that Mark gives us is that it was physically, uh, they were physically unable to lift their hands to their mouth to feed themselves. I would have swung on someone. Like, I would have completely, I love being around people, but if you put me in that environment, like, I'm probably knocking somebody out of my way to at least free up one good quick bite, and then we can go back to it. You wonder if Peter really did this, like, come on hands and, like, hit somebody. And they're like, all right, we cannot put that in here. But (laughs) Jesus, though, is undeterred. Mark doesn't tell us that Jesus loses his temper, that Jesus says, all right, I need five. Jesus coming to serve and to save the lost just immediately begins to minister to all those who are around him. And as that scene at the house continues to unfold, Mark brings our attention to the family of Jesus and that they are beginning to make the 20-mile journey from Nazareth to Capernaum to seize him. They were coming to reign Jesus in. His ongoing confrontations with the Pharisees, his ongoing kind of problematic sayings of who he was and what he had come to do have made its way 20 miles inland, 20 miles from Galilee and Capernaum to Nazareth. And his family's on their way to seize him. And this is what James Edwards says concerning that word seize, which is important to understand as we begin to unpack this sandwich. The Greek for seize that Mark uses is regularly used in the sense of, a, of attempting to bind Jesus and deprive him of freedom. They're not going just to say, hey, could you tone it down a little bit? They're going with the express intent of binding him, of keeping him from continuing on his mission. Those who have been around Jesus the longest are just as mistaken and unclear as the Pharisees and scribes about who Jesus really is and what he came to do. They believe he is out of his mind, and they have come to reign him in. And they have done this not only as a means of protecting Jesus, But perhaps more important to them, they came to seize him as a means to protect their own family's reputation. While he seems to be undeterred by the, Jesus seems to be undeterred by the growing storm clouds gathering on the horizon, his family is now mobilized and feels compelled to act from their perspective for both his best interest and theirs. And so the followers of Jesus are around him in the home, and Jesus' family is on their way to seize him. They just don't quite understand. They can't quite put together who Jesus is and what he's doing. Norm Williams wrote in to Reader's Digest 20 or so years ago and was relayed a story about how funny it can be sometimes when you're misunderstood. He was working on a project, and he went to the local library to search for two books by a communications expert named Deborah Tannen. And when he went there, he said that his exchange with the librarian turned into a little bit of an Abbott and Costello comedy routine. You remember them famously for Who's On First. Everybody is at least maybe somewhat aware of that routine. So he approaches the librarian, and the librarian asks, What's the first book? Norm Norm Williams responds, That's not what I meant. Well, what did you meant, asked the librarian. That's the title of the book, he explained. Okay, she said, looking at him a little skeptically. And the other book? You just don't understand. Excuse me? He eventually got both the books. So the two book titles were That's Not What I Meant and You Just Don't Understand. So imagine, like, that's like, that would be fun. Uh, excuse me, but what can I get you? You just don't understand. Like, don't try that at home with your spouse or your friends or your family. Like, you might get hit if you... There's a certain humor sometimes when it comes to being misunderstood. We can laugh and it's funny. But there are also things and people that we can't be wrong in our understanding of who they are and what they are doing in the world. And Jesus is that. There are a lot of funny memes. There are a lot of funny things that float around the internet or make their way into conversation that poke fun at Jesus, that poke fun at his followers, that make fun of some of our own misunderstandings and our own misconceptions about what faith and life following Jesus looks like. And while we may laugh at ourselves in a moment, we have to be clear both in how we live and in how we communicate the gospel that this is no laughing matter to get the person and work of Jesus wrong. It will not be funny to get to the end of life for people to stand before God and they say they're in conversation in some way and they say, that no, no, that's, that's not what I meant. Or, God, you just don't understand That will no longer be funny. It will end up for those who are outside of Christ to be actually damning to their souls. And so we want to make sure we are clear in our understanding of who Jesus really is. Then Mark moves on and he gives us the meat of the sandwich. And this is going to be what we have to understand in order to understand the verses that are just before it and the verses that are going to come just after it. The scribes and the Pharisees had come down from Jerusalem, and they were telling those in the crowd, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but it's coming to an end. way to seize him or to bind him. And so in the interim, while they're making their way, Jesus finds himself yet again embroiled in confrontation with the Pharisees and the scribes. And while the crowds continue to press in, the teachers of the law dispersed throughout begin to murmur rumors to those near them in the crowd. Perhaps it was loud enough for Jesus to hear. And they're telling others that Jesus is able to do what he does, not by the power of God, Rather, he is possessed by Beelzebub, which is another name for Satan, and that it is by the power of Satan that he is casting out demons. What's interesting is how closely related the views of Jesus' family, who believe he's out of his mind, and the Pharisees, who view him as being a demoniac, really are. Warner Hooker shows the similarities of the two views when she says, Since madness, which is what Jesus' family thought he was, was often regarded as due to possession by a demon, it is arguable that there, Jesus' family judgment on the situation was close to that of the scribes. You can read that and go, well, Jesus' family is on his way to protect him, and the Pharisees are way off base. In reality, they're very close to making the same mistake. They're very close to not understanding who Jesus is and attributing wrong motives and wrong power to him. Which would lead to them both being outsiders. Both the scribes who had studied the law and the family of Jesus who had spent all their time around him. Both in this account in Mark's gospel are portrayed as those outside of Jesus' family. His true family. And we're going to get into that a little more. And so Jesus calls the Pharisees to him. You remember a few weeks ago how he called the man with the withered hand to him. There was the man in the synagogue with the withered hand, and Jesus calls him up. Jesus has either overheard the scribes or he's been made aware of what they're saying. And so he doesn't just allow them to remain hidden among the crowd. He calls them up. He says, make way, let them come up before me because we need to have a little discussion. It's kind of like when you are misbehaving as a kid and your one parent tells you, we're just going to wait until your other parent gets home, which is like, ter- you're like, no. And then you hear the, come out here, we need to talk. You're like, I, no, I don't want to do, like, no, I just would rather. Jesus says, all right, Pharisees, come up here. Scribes, let's go. I want you right here. We're going to have a chat face to face. Jesus begins to speak to them in parables, and we're going to unpack next week the significance of parables. But this marks the first time in Mark's gospel that Jesus teaches in this way. And when Jesus teaches in parables, it is meant to further clarify, based off of those listening and their ability to hear and understand, it's meant to help clarify who are the insiders and who are the outsiders when it comes to being a true disciple of Jesus. In a very calm and logical exchange, Jesus dismantles the Pharisees' statement and shows just how untenable their argument is. If, Jesus says, I am possessed by Satan and I'm being used by Satan to undermine the work of Satan, then the reign of Satan is by definition coming to an end. And I have no business, Jesus says, of even needing to cast out the demons. So Jesus doesn't fly off the handle with them. Jesus doesn't berate them, but in a very calm, logical fashion, walks them through by the use of parables, by saying a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand and a house divided against itself cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself, Satan's rule and reign is coming to an end. And Jesus says, if this is the case, if I'm really empowered by Satan, I need to stop. Because the end is already in progress. But that's not how Jesus explains what he's doing. How does Jesus choose to explain what he's doing? The other way for a kingdom to be overthrown or a house to be overthrown outside of a quarreling or a crumbling from within is to be invaded from the outside. This is what Jesus has come to to do. He is not working in concert with Satan to advance Satan's kingdom, but he is working to ransack and overthrow and liberate those who have been held captive by the strong man of this age. When Jesus alludes to being the one who has bound the strong man, he is pointing to fulfilling another of Isaiah's Prophecies. There was a promise made in Isaiah 49, 24-25 about the Messiah who would lead God's people in a new exodus and restore Israel. And Isaiah prophesied and said about this Messiah, Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the, captives of a, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your Children, since walking out of the desert after being tempted by Satan at the the beginning of his public ministry and after not caving to temptation and sin in the desert, Jesus has been and will remain unchallenged by Satan and his demons who are now powerless to stop Jesus announcing the good news of the kingdom of God through both his words and his works. And so Jesus says, I am the one who has bound the strong man. I am the one who has come to liberate those who have been held captive by this strong man who is ruling and reigning over this present world as you know it. And so I'm not working with Satan to advance his cause or his purposes. I'm working to overthrow and dismantle his kingdom from the outside. And then Jesus offers a solemn and sure warning about aligning Jesus' ministry and the power of Satan's work. Or Jesus' ministry and power with Satan's work. He says that all sins can be, and in fact will be, forgiven except for one. The unforgivable sin is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What exactly is this sin? How many of you have ever read this and been like, have I done that? Like, Is this all useless in my life? Like, how how close am I to doing it? Have I done it? And I just don't need to. I just need to give up now with all of this. Like this verse has caused undue amounts of stress and anxiety in believers' lives because we read it and we go, "I've said dumb things. Maybe I did it and I didn't even know I was doing it." Like, let me just try to help unpack this for a moment so that it would not be a cause for anxiety or confusion, but it would help ground your confidence in the finished work of Christ. Mark gives us a clue about what constitutes this most grievous of sins when he says at the end of in verse 30, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. In other words, the unforgivable sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit has to do with whether you repeatedly believe and tell others Jesus received the power to fulfill his earthly ministry from Satan. Do you view the work of Jesus as divine or demonic? This was the problem with the Pharisees and the scribes' rumor that they were circulating. The ESV Study Bible provides a really helpful, clarifying understanding of these verses when it says... Mark 3.28 emphasizes that all sins will be forgiven, anticipating the eternally valid substitutionary atonement of Jesus. This is where we have to start to unpack this verse if we're going to understand it well. All sins will be forgiven through the work and the life and the death and the resurrection, easy for me to say, of Jesus. This is where everything pivots. However, if a person persistently attributes to Satan what is accomplished by the power of God, that is if one makes a flagrant, willful, decisive judgment that the Spirit's testimony about Jesus is satanic, then a person never has forgiveness. There are some who would say that this is only applicable, this unforgivable sin that Jesus and Mark references here would only be applicable to those who were alive then who could slander the work of the Spirit in Jesus' life while he was on the earth. I think there is some credence to that, but I think how we see this play out is there are people who hear the gospel over and over and over and over again, and they constantly reject it, maybe not even based off the fact that they think it's demonic, but because they think it's just not necessary for their life. And here's the reality of Scripture. The constant hearing, just like the Pharisees and the scribes heard and saw Jesus in his active ministry on the earth, the constant hearing and rejecting of the gospel message for us today results in a hardening of heart that will eventually lead people, while they are still living and breathing in this body, in this life, to pass the point of being able to be saved they will consistently reject the opportunity to respond to the free gift of grace offered in Christ, and they will do it for so long, so repeatedly, with such force and determination that they will eventually find themselves unable to be forgiven of any of their sin. And they will die in, of all the sins that they will die in, the one that will keep them bound to hell is the sin of unbelief. And so, if you're here today and you've trusted Christ, you're not going to do the unforgivable sin. Okay? Like, just breathe for a minute. Like, just relax. It's Freedom Week. All right? Just be free in that for a minute. But also know that every time you share the gospel, the gospel is always doing two things at once it is always either softening the hearts of non believers or hardening the hearts of non believers. The gospel is never delivered as a neutral message that is determined by the person's response. The gospel is always delivered as a message that does one of two things. It either softens the heart of the non-believer to trust Christ and it encourages the heart of a believer to remain faithful to Christ in all of their life, or it serves to harden the heart of the unrepentant and the unregenerate. And both, both will stand At the end of their life, and they will answer for what they did with the opportunity to hear and respond to the invitation to trust in Jesus. Because as surely as God is sovereign in his calling, man is responsible to respond to that calling. No one will arrive at the end of their life and have not been given both what God sovereignly decreed and what they chose for themselves. And so Jesus says, pay very close attention to what you're doing. Jesus doesn't accuse or condemn anyone in this sin in these verses. But he does offer a warning that if the Pharisees continue to put him in league with Satan, they, those who have studied the law the closest and have picked it apart the most, at the most granular level, will find themselves unable and unwilling to... To, for, to receive the forgiveness that will be found in Christ alone so that's the meat of the sandwich and then we get this in 31 through 35 and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you and he answered them who are my mother and my brothers And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the end of the sandwich. But notice how Mark says they were on their way to him. Then he tells us about the Pharisees and how they think that he is working with Satan. And Jesus says, No, 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 I'm not working with him. I'm working against him. And he called the Pharisees up to him. Now, notice what Mark says at the end here. He says that Jesus' family calls for him. The one who thinks they're in a position of authority calls someone else to them. Like if my daughter who is three calls me over to her in a very direct manner, like she's the parent, we have a talk about how she's not the parent. Like there is a role of authority that gives me the ability to call my daughter to me. Jesus' family is now trying to exercise the same authority over Jesus that Jesus exercised over the Pharisees. They're trying to say, hey, you, Jesus, we need you in front of us right now, which is a bold statement to make to the Son of God in the flesh. But remember, they don't have the benefit in the moment that we do living this side of the cross. They think he's just a guy who maybe is a little confused about what he's really supposed to be doing with his life. The message makes its way to Jesus. His family wants to begin the process of getting him back to Nazareth and to safety before any further issues can arise. And when word reaches Jesus, he doesn't up and go out, but he looks around and he poses the following question. Who are my mother and my brothers? And then he just looks. And it's one of those looks that would just make you uncomfortable if he were giving it to you and he was here. And like, You would start to like adjust in your seat. You'd kind of shift a little bit. You'd try to find a way to maybe make a joke to l- alleviate the tension. And he just looks and he says, but who, who are my mother and my brothers? There'd been talk. And he wasn't born under normal circumstances. He says, Who, who are they? And he just looks. And then he answers his own question. Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And perhaps part of the reason they kept their mouths shut when he asked that question is he just said, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you're not going to be forgiven. Maybe they're like, I'm not answering because I'm not trying to get cast out of this whole deal forever. Like, answer your own question, smart guy. Like, you could understand that there would be at least a moment's pause of like, wait, is is this? Is he setting somebody up in here to commit this sin right here, right now? And he answers, he says, but whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Notice he doesn't say father. Because divine sonship is reserved for Christ alone. He has no other father, just as we have no other father. Fathers, except for our Father in heaven. Jesus says, My mother and my brother and my sisters are those who do the will of God. In the first century world, one's family determined your present reality and your future possibilities. And in this moment, Jesus redefines the most important social unit of the day to revolve around hearing and following him as he both proclaims and demonstrates the will of God through his life. Jesus is by no means denouncing the family unit but he is saying that to belong to God's family, to be God's chosen people, will no longer be determined by your family being able to trace their line back to one of the tribes of Israel. But you will know in part that you are in the new family of God when you find obedience to Jesus who is God in the flesh marking your life. Jesus takes the one social unit by which everyone understood their standing in the world. And he completely reorients all of their understanding of identity and meaning and purpose and future and possibilities by saying, my family are those who do the will of God. There's also this added benefit that's buried in here. If we peel back just that initial I want to be in God's family. I want to be considered one of Jesus' sisters or brothers or mothers. There's also this hidden benefit in there that our relationships as with fellow believers living as a family in a local church will be enhanced as we practice active obedience. Did you catch that? Like our enjoyment of one another is enhanced as we practice active obedience. Kent Hughes summarizes this beautifully when he says, Obedience is also the key to experiencing family with our brothers and sisters in Christ here on earth. When we make our wills his will, we experience a dynamic relationship with others who are living in submission to him. Could I just submit to you that maybe one of the reasons churches across the city, across the country, around the world struggle to experience dynamic relationships with one another is because we want everyone else around us to live in submission to our will for our life, rather than everyone living in submission to God's ultimate will for all of our lives, which is growing in sanctification, living out the gospel, making disciples, giving our life away in service to the kingdom, and then dying and being welcomed into God's embrace forever. But well, we will always struggle to experience the dynamic relationship. But we read about especially in Acts which is one of those champion verses for churches, and it should be, even though it's descriptive, you still get the idea that part of what made their relationship so, so dynamic and their presence in the city so magnetic was that they all lived submitted to Jesus' will for their life. They didn't use everyone else in and around them. They didn't use fellow believers as a means to accomplishing their own will for their own life. But they all lived with glad-hearted, humble submission to Jesus as the one who would set the course for their life. And I just think this is why for us community matters. It's why one-on-one discipleship matters. It's why confession of sin matters. It's why encouragement, encouraging one another matters. Is because there is a hidden benefit in all of this that we do as a church family where if we will practice active obedience together, we can experience dynamic relationships like nothing we've known before. And that's what Jesus is advocating. So now let's take it all and let's construct it together. So we've got our top piece of bread. We've got our bottom piece of bread. We've got the filling that's going to go in the middle. And so let's use the middle section to determine and unlock the full meaning of the first and last sections. And if we do that, what do we find? We find that Jesus will not be seized or bound by his family as they set out to do. Rather, he has come to bind and seize Satan and plunder his kingdom, and nobody will stop him in that endeavor. And in so doing, he is going to create a new family, us. Believers. And not only that, but Jesus alerts his family that, related by blood though they may be, they have no claim to privilege over Jesus' life and mission. And it is the same for us. We have no claim of privilege over Jesus' life and mission. Jesus did not come to help us live our best life now. We do not fit Jesus into the life we already wanted to lead and live. Jesus reorients all of our life around him. Mark uses all of this this top part about Jesus' family coming to see him, this intervening section about Jesus saying, I didn't actually, I'm not the one that's going to be bound, but I'm going to bind and I'm going to free people. And then he Follows it up with an understanding and an explanation of what it will look like to be a member of his family, so that we would have a true and better picture of what discipleship looks like over against false discipleship. James Edwards defines true and false discipleship like this: True disciples are with Jesus and do the will of God. They are Jesus' true family. Now listen to this definition of a false disciple: False disciples attempt to restrain Jesus from his mission or redirect him to another. We know we can't stop or hinder the work of God in the world. But are there not times that we really work hard to redirect Jesus to another mission? that we work really hard to get Jesus to do what we want him to do for us. So we have to be very careful because, look, the the two groups that got warned in this section, the two groups that are actually the outsiders are his family and the religious of the day. It is a call to remember, it is a call to examine that nearness to God, nearness to Christ does not equate to faithful, true discipleship. We do not become disciples by osmosis. We we become disciples by submission. Soren Kierkegaard, famous Danish philosopher, said this, and I think this sums up a lot of where we go off about trying to restrain or redirect Jesus. Kierkegaard said this, The Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. That hits a little bit too close to home for me. I can read and understand the clear commands of Scripture on what it is to love God and to love others, but I can spend hours talking to you about how we're not really sure exactly what that would look like today, all as a ruse and as a means to keep from having to actually obey. And if I'm claiming to be one who is in Christ's family, that means that I am hindering the mission of Christ. And I'm putting myself more on the side of being a false disciple than a true disciple. And so we want to love the Word. We want to know the Word well. We want the Word to serve as one of the anchors of our souls. But we are never to use the Word of God to keep us from living on mission for God in obedience to God. And if we're not careful, we can do that all in the name of precise theology and all in the name of loving the Scriptures. And in the process, we can develop cold, hard that do not give a rip about the God that our theology and our Bibles tell us about. Being a disciple of Jesus isn't just another hat that we wear on a Sunday afternoon where we take all of our other hats off and we say, now I'm going to church, let me put my Jesus hat on. It's not a hat we wear just during small group or just while we're on mission trips. To truly follow Jesus is to have every aspect of our life every detail, all of our current and future plans be reoriented around the gospel. James Edwards sums this whole passage up when he says this, If those around Jesus, even the Holy Family, are placed under question, then Mark places under question all who grew up amid the trappings of Christianity, whether through baptism, Christian homes, confirmation, church attendance, or charitable giving. Anyone can be an insider who sits at Jesus' feet and does the will of his Father, and no one can be an insider who does not. Let's commit tonight and going forward to be those who ask the Spirit of God living in us for wisdom and courage and strength and unwavering faithfulness to both the message and the mission of Jesus for his glory and for our good. Let's pray.